0: All right, guys, another uh, another roundtable. So um hope everything's been going well with everyone. I know, uh, Brandon, last time we chatted, we were uh, going to connect and we finally got to connect in person. Uh, PC was awesome. So I don't know if you guys had any other um, updates. We'll, we'll start with you, Brandon. I know um, I think I saw on your and I, I asked you this on Instagram, but I don't know if you got back to me yet. I did see that you're are you thinking about going full time into, into coaching now or
1: is that? Actually, we didn't get to have this conversation. So for anyone in the audience that doesn't realize it's been a couple of weeks since Jeff and I have caught up or done a podcast um, and we saw each other in PC actually about three weeks ago at this point, but yes, I've actually went full-time. So this was my first week of full-time coaching. I've been coaching, obviously you guys know, and the audience knows for going on 10 years and I actually made the announcement on Jeremiah's podcast last week. But I I resigned from my corporate position within the sports nutrition industry. And this has been my first full-time week as an online coach. So it was a big decision. I was at a fork in the road where essentially I love coaching. That's really my passion. And it was recently my birthday. Jeff was actually there for it. And we went out to dinner the one night to celebrate. However, I was really thinking like I've spent 14 years in the supplement industry. And it's something I loved but I really have gotten more of a passion out of helping others on an individual one-on-one level within the context of coaching clients as well as coaching mentees and educating others. And I got to a point where I was just time-constrained. I was, uh, one of my close friends always calls me time poor. He's like, you got everything else, but you just don't have time. That's the one, you know, resources you can't allocate any further. And you guys know this because even when we do podcasts and stuff, I'm always like time crunched and always like really scheduling things and I'm up at 3 a.m. and it's, it's a hectic schedule. And I got to the point where I kept getting inquiries for coaching clients and I kept having to put them on a wait list. And it got to the point where I really sat down with myself and a couple of my other, my mentors. And I really thought to myself, like, what do I want to spend the next couple of decades of my life doing? And, you know, I did a pro con chart. I did a whiteboard discussion. I did one actually at Jeff's house when I was in Tennessee. Uh, Jeff, so you guys know, um, Jeff Black, who's my co-host on Chasing Clarity. And it came down to it. I had all these benefits and very little cost in terms of going full-time coaching. So I have made the transition. Um, So if anyone's interested and wants to discuss or anyone from the podcast, I've gotten a lot of people that over time have reached out to me through both of your guys' podcasts. If anyone wants to reach out and inquire with me, one thing is don't go to my website. Actually, I just realized this when I did the podcast with Jeremiah, the the inquiries area of my website is not working. And I reached out to the web designer who initially designed my website about a year and a half ago, and I can't get in touch with him. He actually relocated to Thailand and he's working for Dr. Tony Huge. So he's still in the fitness industry, but he's full-time with him and he just doesn't have the time. I guess he's just super busy with, with YouTube content creation and stuff. So I haven't been able to get that Transferred over. So I had a couple of people reach out this week and say, Hey, listen, you know, I, I went on your website. I, I put an inquiry. I haven't heard back from you. And I have throughout all of my coaching, I've always had a 24 hour policy. I do not go any longer than that. And I'm anal retentive on that. I'm OCD about email inquiries. And I just hadn't received them. So if anyone is interested or just wants to discuss things, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at BrandonDacruz underscore or at my email, which is bdacruzfitness at gmail.com. But other than that, everything's been going well. It's been a blessing. It is a, Weird transition because I am used to such a corporate structure, but I'm looking forward to uh, this journey of being, you know, a solopreneur, essentially, doing what you guys do.
0: Yeah. Basically, now you can just go to the beach and just, you know, sip on your drink and just and do that, right? That's that's kind <laughs> of the only I wish, laptop. man. I've been, Hell yeah. I've been
1: spending like uh, like 12 hours in my home <laughs> office just yeah. – uh, program in a way, but no, it's, it's, it really is nice to be able to, because I wake up at so early to be able to interact with international clients. I have a, a good, you know, basis of clients in, in the UK, Australia, and a few other countries spread out Spain, stuff like that. And then I'll spend my evenings into the nighttime working on us clients and domestic clients that check in during the day. But now I've been able to schedule it to the point where, you know, I'm not like time crunched as much as I was. And I am, also able to consult with more people. I've been doing consultation calls all week with uh, people that are potential mentees and things of that sort. So I really look forward to being able to to invest more into this because I've tried to give as much back into this industry as possible, whether it be through content creation or podcasts. You know, I'm pretty sure besides you guys, no one's done more guest appearances on podcasts than me, you know? So I'm really looking forward to be able to to give more and really serve more. That's cool. I I
0: feel like too, that's, for me, that's always a hard part is like, kind of like, cutting it off and and not like letting work go too late into the day. So I feel like for you, that'll be super nice to kind of be able to uh, kind of time block your day to where you don't have to work, you know, too, too late into the day because that, you know, that, that sucks, right. You want to be able to kind of um, disconnect at some point, but also I feel like too, for you, I think the cool thing, and, and this is something that I had a conversation with Jeremiah probably a little over a month ago, I was just like trying to do more and like, just try to add things. I'm like, dude, I just need to focus on like just my coaching. Right. And like, I feel like when you can just focus on that one thing, you know, that does get a lot better too. So that's, I feel like that's going to be super nice for you as well.
1: hundred percent. What I was really finding was I was hanging on to this career within the supplement industry because I had spent so much time and I do have a good amount of skills within what I was doing, especially from like a research and development perspective and knowing about supplementation and working with hundreds of of accounts throughout the years. And I was holding on to that because I was like, oh, I can do both. But really, like in my ideology, like really, I'm not a multitasker. I really don't believe in multitasking. I believe in locking in. And that's why, you know, you can ask me about anything pop culture or political. I can't answer any of those questions, but you guys ask me anything about nutrition, training, supplementation. I got you, but I'm very narrow-mindedly focused on that. And this is really where my passion lies. And that's where I had to sit myself down with both my family and then some of my mentors and say, where are the next few decades of my life going to be focused on? And I need to make a decision. And it was, I'll be honest with you guys, it was a really hard one because I do have more of a passion for nutrition coaching, but I also have, you know, a decade plus invested into a corporate career, but, you know, when I really analyzed everything, I said, listen, I I think I can make a greater contribution to the nutrition coaching space than I can within the supplement industry. And my passion, I'm gonna help more people by being able to coach people one on one and then also deliver, you know, educate people and things of that sort. And then transferring over into, you know, being an educator, doing more seminars. There's been a lot of opportunities I've had this turn down because of the corporate constraints of my lifestyle. So I'm really looking forward to not only being able to help more people, but also Jeff, like you hit on, I have no work-life balance. I, I work around the clock. So it's Be really nice to be able to connect more with my family. Um, this will actually be only the second July 4th that I'm celebrating with my family because previously July 4th was a huge holiday within sports nutrition because there are a lot of sales. I'm sure you guys see it online, but a lot of my accounts would have sales, so I would travel every single July 4th weekend. So I have not been home for July 4th until last summer, which due to the pandemic, I was unable to travel. But now, like little things like that that everyone else does, I'm gonna be able to partake and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh
0: How, um, so I guess then, uh, we'll, we'll kind of dive on like the training side of things. What, uh, has that changed for you? Like training time or anything like that? Um, and then maybe a little update on where you're at with that, with the, with the training side of things. So your, no, your a lot of people,
1: yeah, a lot of people have asked me, am I going to change my structure and the way I lay out my day? And I, honestly, I'm not, I'm still waking up between three 30 and 4. a.m. I am just an early riser. That's kind of, I have an early chronotype. Uh, meaning that I am good with going to sleep early, waking up early. I I really like being productive early in the day and going to the gym where I'm able to put my all into something early before the responsibilities of the day, before I get emails, before I get any phone calls. So I'm still keeping up with the same type of routine that I have, but it's just where I'm spending my entire day um, on coaching and then also with lead generation as well as getting back to lead. So that is an area that honestly, I was, I was slipping with, uh, in terms of really being able to communicate and reach out to those that were interested in working with me. So that has been my major focus this past week. However, I'm in a mini cut right now. I'm not sure- uh, Jeff, when we were together, that was the end of my off season. I was already at the point where I was having some digestive issues I had been pushing food for an extended period of time. Um, I had been essentially in a surplus for nine months. It would have been a year, but I also had that surgery last summer, so I was out of training for three months and then I spent the next nine months essentially in a surplus trying to rebuild tissue that I had lost during the off period from having the car accident as well as the surgeries that I had and so uh, I got to the point where I was accruing body fat more than I was you know. We've spoken about on our podcast, the P ratio and stuff, but I was, I was starting to accrue more adipose tissue than I was muscle mass. I was starting to see like my appetite was really low. I was starting to feel lethargic after meals. So there was a lot of stop gaps in the system and bottlenecks. So I entered a mini cup phase. It's going on three weeks. So I've done an aggressive deficit I right off the bat. Now, mind you, when I say these numbers, I don't want people to extrapolate them and and apply them to themselves. I will give you guys some context to it, but I took a thousand calories right off the bat. And the reason for that is I'm someone that I have a very adaptive metabolism. We've spoken about this numerous times. And so I'm someone that I get pretty high in the off season because my my metabolism upregulates. So you see metabolic adaptations on the way up. So I, I have what I call like an artificially inflated uh, calorie intake in the off season. Like it's a couple hundred calories. It's a range. And we know that maintenance is a range, but I essentially am able to, or I need to consume a couple hundred calories more than, than you would probably expect based off my body weight when I'm in an off season scenario. Cause I'm moving more. Cause my need increases. Cause I'm very active. It, you guys see me. I'm talking on my hands. I'm dieting right now, but I'm all over the place. And so with that, I took a thousand calories off, which was really more of a of a seven hundred and fifty uh, a seven hundred and fifty calorie deficit, and so uh, I've been losing at about two pounds per week which is for me, for a mini cut, it's about one to 1.25% per week is what I'm averaging right now. I'm going to continue this on for the next couple of weeks. Generally for me, mini cuts are between three and six weeks based on my biofeedback, um, what my my physique, my composition's looking like, my rate of loss, how my training's going. But I've also lowered training volume just a little bit because I was in a progressive cycle where I was at the height of my off season. So my volume was increased from where it would be during a eucaloric, like a maintenance calorie intake or, or during a deficit. So I've, lower training volume, more to like what I would utilize during my week one of my mesocycle when I've just kept the baseline and haven't taken progressive increases in volume, even if my biofeedback indicates it. And so training is going really well Uh mini cut is going well, uh, starting to get a lot leaner. And also I have some opportunities within fitness modeling. Um, I just landed a cover actually, it, it came out yesterday. So I, I got an international uh, magazine cover and I also got a 13 or 14 page spread where actually it was all on nutrition coaching. So it actually aligned perfectly. I wrote this a few months back, but it aligned perfectly with the first week that, um, you know, I'm obviously full-time within coaching. So I also have a couple of uh, other opportunities to write for some publications as well as do some modeling gigs throughout the summer. So I'm going to see where this mini cut lands me. I'm probably going to go into a diet break, uh, for at least like a week or two, and then see, am I going to going to continue dieting for any other upcoming events? Or am I going to go right back into a, um, you know, a building phase because I've potentiated my ability to grow at that point.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like for you, like you kind of have to like stay somewhat leaner if you mm-hmm. are going to like do some like, you know, photo shoots or anything like that. Like you almost have to like be within like striking distance really mm-hmm. It 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 most, you know, most times one thing I want to hit on is you kind of talk about you're a, uh, you like to get up early, go to bed early for me. It's like weird. I had to switch over where like I'm naturally, I like to like my body type is stay up late, wake up later. And like, for me, I've had to kind of really work on like switching that over, but dude, I'll tell you what, I freaking like my body wants to like sleep in a little bit later and go to bed a little bit later. But man, every morning when I get up like earlier and get stuff done earlier, I just feel so much freaking better. I don't know if Jeremiah, you like if you naturally are are earlier or later or what. But I know like for me, that's always been a struggle. It's like you, know, but I feel so much better when I wake up earlier and get and get shit done.
2: Yeah, man. I think you need to do like your deep focus work in the morning. You're always so much more productive. <clears throat> for me, naturally, I'm very much like you where. This reminds me of, like, have you guys seen the graphic where it's, like, you're the fucking wolf and you should do, like, intermittent (laughs) fasting. You should do a 16-8, but you're the lion, so you should do, like, the 24. I don't know why this conversation around, like, your body type, and this reminds me of that. but Which we uh, know has
1: no empirical evidence behind it whatsoever. But I love
2: when they do those, like, little graphics. (laughs) Um, No, I naturally like that as well. But, like, for us, honestly, just, like, getting on the same schedule as Katie, Jeff, I know you can relate to this. Brandon, I don't know more than you think about your personal life, honestly. So I don't know if you have a girlfriend or not, actually, now that I think of it, but Jeff, I know you we yeah, don't know how so- to put it out here if you want.
1: <laughs> no, no, absolutely. So I I had been in a relationship. We're not official. Anymore, just honest, I'll be completely transparent with both of you and as well as with the audience. Like I said, I, I very much lack work-life balance. So I had taken a break from our relationship because I was so busy between both jobs that honestly I just didn't have the time to spend with her. So I would really see her once a week. Her name's Christina, she's incredible. Um, and so I usually would only spend like one weekend day a week with her because I was so busy with work, but actually I've seen her more in the last couple of weeks, knowing that I was, you know, anticipating this turnover or this switch over to coaching full time. And and so she's an important part of my life without a doubt. But I just I have never had the time to really allocate towards a relationship. Like Jeff, I know that you recently moved in with your now fiance, you know, obviously Jeremiah, you live with yours. And so I've just never had that opportunity because I've had two businesses that I've essentially run. And people ask me all the time, like, how are you so productive? Or how do you, I've sacrificed my social life. I've sacrificed time with my friends. I've sacrificed time with my family. I've sacrificed time with my loved ones. That's the honest truth. And a lot of people don't want to put that out because they want to seem balanced, but I'll be completely honest with you guys. I would not be as far ahead as I have been now from an educational, from a coaching and from a business perspective, if I didn't make those sacrifices. So I can't say it wasn't worth it. But at the same time, when I came to this fork in the road recently, and I realized, listen, I don't have the time for anything. I I need to really, you know, allocate my resources, both from a, a mental currency, as well as an energy perspective and a focus perspective. Really one of the biggest decision makers was do I still work in this corporate perspective that has me locked into at least nine to six or at least nine to seven every single day and sacrifice a lot of the opportunities that I have to educate more people, to work with more people, to see my friends, to see my family. And really when it came down to it, it was both, I did this for both a personal and a professional level to go into full-time coaching because now I can, this is my first time in my ent- entire adult life where I've made my own schedule. This is the first week that I've ever done that. So a lot of people are asking, Hey, are you changing your schedule? No, because it works for me, but now I don't have the constraints of having to be on multiple calls. Jeremiah, we just spoke about this. There's a lot of times I've been on a podcast with you guys and we get on at 4 or 5 p.m. and I'm skipping lunch just to be able to allocate that hour for us to be able to have this podcast. But I'm 50 calls deep. So imagine like my mental, like my mental resources already dead. Sometimes I tell you guys, I'm like, dude, I'm shot. We got an hour. I'm going to try to deliver as much value to your your audience. But after that, like I'm going to be shut down or there's times that I'm doing podcasts at four 30 in the morning. Now I have a little bit more flexibility and also a little bit more mental currency to engage. Like I love, you know, getting on the podcast and talking with you guys. I love the feedback that we get, but there's been a lot of times within the last couple of years where I've had to turn down opportunities to even like link up with you guys or, or do things like that. Or Jeff, you saw that I actually went to an educational seminar and I did a two for one. I celebrated my birthday and I also had clients and friends come meet with me because I just in the past, I just haven't had the time. And I'm very fortunate that I have friends that are very understanding of my ambitions, my goals, but it's come at the sacrifice of a lot of relationships. So I'm really looking forward to now being in a different state and a different position within my life where I can prioritize more of my personal life.
0: Yeah. I know, I know me and Jeremiah, we always talk about the the balance aspect of it. It, it, it is hard. And, and uh, you know, the, when we hopped on the phone call the, uh, like a week ago, I was like, Man, I'm done for the day, and I'm like, I feel like I still should get more stuff done, but it's like, dude, it's it's hard. It's it's sometimes hard to to shut it off and and finding that balance is super hard. I I told you uh, to Jeremiah that like, you know, Allie she keeps me uh, she keeps me balanced. She she keeps me in check to where like if if I start slacking in that in that uh, aspect, you know, she kind of gets on me, which I'm you know I'm definitely thankful for because I can I can get the same way where I can get super like, you know, just all in on one thing, and, and sometimes I can lack that balance, and 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 it, and it is hard. So yeah.
2: Oh yeah. That's definitely been a learning experience for us too. Like Katie and I dated for four years, we were apart for three years and that was like one of the biggest reasons we broke up. Right. And then my relationship after that ended as well. And that's like, for me, it's having to like, it's become like being very aware of like, what am I willing to trade off and like how much of like understanding, like at the end of the day, like the relationship is incredibly important to me. And like, but like drawing the line, figuring out like her expectations for when I'll be done with work when she gets back to hang out with me versus like, these are the nights that I'm just gonna like, you have to be okay with me working all night. And like, uh, just like setting those expectations has been super helpful. but. I don't know if we necessarily want to do a podcast on relationships, so we can move on. To this topic. <laughs> no, but I
1: think I think this for anyone in the audience. If you guys find this kind of stuff valuable, I know a lot of people that ask me like business advice and like even how to like manage your your time constraints and your responsibilities. And like if this kind of stuff helps you guys, especially for any coaches out there or any people that are interested in the fitness industry, please ask us, and we would love to cover that mm-hmm. stuff for you guys. Because even just hearing the perspective of other people, I think it's just helpful because we aren't like business coaches. We're not like these guys that put on these facades. Like what you see is what you get. You know, I've met Jeremiah in person. I've met Jeff in person, like exactly the person that you see or that you you hear us speak of, or, you know, how we present ourselves on these podcasts. That's really genuinely how we are. And we're just like everyone else. Like we're just really dialed into what we do as a career and we really love it. But at the same time, like we have, like I've shared, I have personal struggles with trying to balance my, my personal life and things of that sort. And so some things I do immensely well in but there's other things that I, I really do need work in just like everyone else in our audience. Oh,
0: yeah. I agree. I, I will say one thing though, where uh, you guys are different um, in person than on uh, Instagram. <laughs> I know this. I know you, guys, you guys are both tall as hell in person.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I expected Brandon fact, for as jacked as he is. I expected him to be like a short dude. And then I was like, fuck dude, Brandon's taller than me. He's also more jacked than me. So I can't even pull that card on <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, Cool. Yeah. No. And and, uh, real quick, before we get into
0: questions, Jeremiah, uh, any, any update on you in terms of like, like training or anything like that?
2: Yeah, man. So, um, what things have been going well, I was on a bit of a reverse diet. I had cut down about 15 pounds. I'm starting my next fat loss phase. I'm feeling good, man. This is the leanest I have been in three years now. And I'm at a good point. Um, I definitely did not say like as lean as like, as we mentioned, like Brandon, I feel like you typically say pretty lean. I definitely did not say like as lean in my off season, but it's cool to like see myself be leaner and like, man, I finally look like a lift again. Like I'm actually looking pretty jacked. I feel like I've got quite a bit bigger over the last few years. It's super cool to see that kind of come to fruition. Um, Again, like like in my in 2019, no twenty twenty we pushed all the way up to two forty, and I'm like two hundred right now. I don't think I'm ever gonna push up that high again. And Jeff, I know like even like mostly do the shit that I've learned from Brandon. I know we talked about this with you. Like we pushed you pretty high this last year as well. And I don't like similarly. I don't think that I would push nearly that high again. Um, but dude, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling pretty jacked, which is a nice way to feel. Um, I got a pendulum squat for the garage, which is damn. Good amazing dude i i love it it's just like such i there are very few movements i feel like where you can just get it's not i don't want to say effortless but it like just puts you in that state of deep knee flexion like so much easier than like a heel elevated barbell back squat or like a split squat or anything of that nature it's 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 been dope so far so that has been great. I've also heard, like, Jeff, I know you mentioned this, where, like, when you're trying to progress that pendulum for weeks and weeks on end, it starts to get a little bit brutal. So we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, man, things are going good from that perspective. I'm feeling lean. Um, probably going to take it down about another eight pounds. I have that trip to Bali coming up here at the end of August with, like, Jackson Piaas, Aaron is going to be out there, and Tristan Winters is Tristan Winters oh, yeah. going together as well. So that, that'll be dope to, like – I I know it's like part education, but part like island hopping, we're just going to get to live together and whatnot. So that'll be a super cool experience. And I I, honestly, man, it's so cool to me that we're in the position, just be able to like, okay, I'm going to go to Bali for a week. And that's fine. like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool thing. I think it's pretty easy to get caught up in the stress of like owning your own business and things, but like, it's so cool that we can just do that. Um, I'm about to actually take over my own training as well for the first time since Man, in the last four years, I've just been obsessed with like trying to learn from as many people as possible. So it's going to work with, I'm always going to be working with a different coach. I want to like see how they program, I want to see how they deliver their systems or services so I can continue to improve. But I'm excited to, I'm probably going to work with somebody in the nutrition perspective. I'm not, I've talked to Eric Stryker about that a little bit as well, but I'm excited to just program for myself for a while um, and really like actually run through my own programming and really see like how I can improve the way that I deliver that to clients. So th- that'll be cool. But really, that's kind of what's been going on from my end. It's
0: awesome, man. Yeah. I, f- I feel like you kind of mentioned like you were at 240 and then 200. And now you're finally just starting to feel jacked. I feel like there's that like kind of weird point in time when like you gain and then you like don't feel like you're bigger, but you know underneath you are getting bigger. But then like you start cutting. So then you're like kind of depleted, but yeah, still like have a little fat. bit of, yeah, you like just don't look as great. Right. And like I-, I feel like you got over that hump when that, you know, that does happen. It's like, that part of fat loss, I feel like is good because it's like easy, right? Like you think you just pretty much lose weight. No problem. Right. You're at the beginning of a deficit, but it's like also at the same time you don't see like those changes and you're just kind of like, what the hell's going on? But then I feel like you get to that one hump and then all of a sudden it's just like every day, then you're like, okay, now I'm starting to notice it and then it gets a little bit more addicting, but at the same time it also gets harder too because you're getting leaner. So,
2: yeah. And it's, it's been a pretty easy diet. As you guys know, like I don't ever feel like dieting until I get shredded at this point with this experience of a diet as a, a dieter as I am. And I do believe it's just such a skill, right? We understand food volume so well. We understand all these things so well. And honestly, like with our work, a lot of types of eating is just annoying anyways to where it's it's not necessarily like that hard at this point until I get, and I'm definitely not at the point yet where I have like brain fog or anything of that nature. But Jeff, what's been going on with you, dude? Um, Just building, man. Uh, uh, I had,
0: I was having like a little bit of a tough time getting over like, getting out of like 156, 157 out of the 150s. Um, but I finally got over that hump and kind of we I just I think I was still kind of in like the fat loss mindset. Like I was still kind of like trying to eat a little little too high uh, food volume and like was just and so I just was having a hard time getting out of it. But training, training was going well. Um so that's feeling good. Um just training four days a week right now. Um which is nice. Cause I get like one day a week to really get a bunch of work done. So that's been nice. And I know we're going to stick with that for another uh, training phase and then probably bump it back up. But um, yeah, training's just going well, man. Uh, I After having, I had Steve Hall on my podcast and I already knew this, but like it kind of just hit home. Like obviously we want to focus on making sure we're seeing weight trend up over time in, in a building phase. But I also think it's super important to like really pay attention to your training performance and like how that's going, like making sure that that's improved because at the end of the day, like, yes, you need to be in that surplus. You need to make sure you're getting plenty of protein and, and whatnot, but like it, it to send that signal to build muscle, you got to make sure that training is there. So, you know, I think it's super important to really focus on that. So that, that's one thing that I'm really trying to um, hone in on here in this next phase. And what I did towards the end of the phase, um, is just really dial in that, that training performance, which I feel like it's, it is on point, but I just feel like, again, you know, you can let that slip if you, if you just, you know, kind of take your foot off the gas pedal just a little bit. So
2: yeah, man. I feel like that is something though you're very aware of, like your logbook, where I, at least from my perspective, like looking over your logbooks week to week, like you're consistently adding a rep or consistently adding a little bit of load, like you do a very good job progressing things. But I also think as a coach, like I'd be interested to hear you guys take, but I think like to truly, from my perspective, if you're not like reviewing logbooks for most people on a consistent basis, it's hard for me to necessarily know like how you're actually giving that person the best service because that's such an important part of it where, which I could be off base here, but at least like from my perspective, because I feel like that is, especially like if it's a muscle growth client, like, okay, maybe if it's just like, Hey, I want to have fun with my training. Cool. If I build a little bit of muscle, but I'm mostly willing lose fat. Maybe that's a different scenario, but still, I feel like, I don't know, like if we're just like sending out, Hey, here's your four to six week training block. And we'll talk about it again in the four to six weeks. Like, I don't know how people necessarily get the best results like that. Like, I feel like that's such an important thing to all.
0: Well, and if you don't, I feel like too, if you're not tracking it, it's so easy to just end up spinning your wheels. Like if you're not tracking oh, okay. it and like actively looking at like what you did the previous week, I mean, dude, it's so easy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys can write. There's been so many times where like, had I not logged that and like looked at it, I would have stopped two or three reps short of that. Right. Like there's been times where I know looking at it now, again, we know that like, I feel like you can overdo it and just try to beat the log book. But I feel like if you're not, Good point. if you're not. Writing that down, I, I feel like you're, that's a recipe to just spin your wheels, right? You feel like you're doing enough, but at the end of the day, it's like it's just what is within your comfort zone, and like in order to change, you got to get outside of that that comfort zone. And I feel like you need to to log that to actually do that. Otherwise, you're going to go to what's easiest, right? So, absolutely.
1: I think a lot of us, I mean, in any aspect, whether you're intermediate, advanced, beginner. we're a creature of comfort, you know what I mean? So we really have to realize what I really try to get across to clients, especially within their training is we have to push outside of our comfort zone and challenge our body. We have to present ourselves with an overloading stimulus. And I don't just mean in the fact of progressive overload. We obviously know that's a construct within the, the context of programming, but we have to challenge our body and bring it to a place that it hasn't been before. So I like both objective and then subjective markers. I want to see their strength progression, but I also want to see about their pump, their mind and muscle connection. I want to see about their, their, uh, disruption of the muscle, what their soreness indicators are like. And I'm not saying every single one of those are blatant indicators of muscle growth, but it is an indication that we are subjecting our bodies and our muscles to a progressive increase in the training stimulus that we're, we're looking for, and if not, then we have to make adjustments. So I'm big into auto-regulated programming. So there is never a set and forget. You guys know this is my like number one thing: never set and forget a program, whether it's calorically, whether it's food wise, whether it's training wise, supplement wise. Everything is progressive. This is an evolution, both in terms of how I coach, but also the context of working with an individual. Every week I'm learning their body better. I'm, I'm getting a, a closer read on their biofeedback. I have files of Upon files of data sheets. And it's funny because sometimes I'll have a client I've been working with for quite some time say, listen, uh, can't we just do what we did last time? And I'm like, I have all the data that we did last time. However, your body has changed. You are now five, six pounds more muscular. So yes, I do have a foundation in which I know things that work and we can trial. you know, we can keep trialing error um, within the context of that data. However, we might have to make deviations. And I want you to also realize that what worked six months, nine months, 12 months ago. You know, I have a client right now that we're going through a contest prep and she was hesitant about taking a refeed. And I'm like, listen, we have to do, first of all, I have to trial this out. She's six weeks out right now. And I said, I have to collect a dad. And she's like, well, you've already peaked me for shows before. And I said, yes, Manuela, but here's the thing. Your body's completely different. We're on a completely different space. So we won the overall at your, your last show. However, what what got you there last time will not necessarily be enough to get you even further this time, because now we're training for a national level show. And this girl has a very good chance of turning pro. So I said, listen, just like with an Everything, everything's a progression. So just like you become a more advanced trainee and the progression within our diet skills, within our nutritional approach, within our training approach has changed. So will be the refeed strategies. So will be the carb-up strategies. There will be some similarities because there's certain things within your biology and within your physiology that are very similar, but there's also different th- differences in your lifestyle, the stresses that you have within your life, the work environment that she's in currently. So there's so many variables that I really don't like when people, you know, a lot of coaches will use paradigm. So it's like every mesocycle is five to one and for five weeks. You're going to go five weeks of training, one week of a deload. And I just, I don't, I know that's an easier approach. I know that's a lot more structured. And sometimes you're giving someone, you know, you tell a client that and it gives them something to rely on because it is very organized. It's like every six week, I'm going to be deloading. However, I don't think that's the best individualized approach to take because you don't know if that client's going to be, you know, overly stressed and overreached by week four, or if it's week six or seven and they're still making progress. Why would we stop that? Just for, you know, just to put in a deload because it's scheduled. It should be on a needs basis as with every adjustment we make as a coach
0: yeah I, i've definitely changed my thought process on that for sure where like i used to kind of stick to more like hey every four or five weeks we're changing it but now I'm more like okay let's kind of see how you're feeling because it's like if you don't need a deload week why would we necessarily take one now again i think as long as you stop momentum with that
2: yeah, but yeah.
0: It, yeah it, absolutely. And I think, I think it does. I think again, if we get to these extremes to where it's like either super short or like you need like eight, 10 weeks without one, then it's like, okay, we maybe need to look into what you're doing within it. But it's like, again, if you're eight to 10 weeks in and it's like, you're feeling fine. It's like, why would we take a deload week? Right. But again, I think if it goes that long, you probably definitely need to at least like look into what, what's going on there with their training. Maybe they can make it a little bit more um, effective or, or something like that. Uh, you're, you, you talking about this, it's, this reminded me of a tweet that I favored it the other day from Alex uh, Um He had like this like thread of tweets and it was most people do enough to maintain, but not enough to drive adaptation. And ever since I heard that tweet, I was just like, damn, I just started thinking about like how like we can get so like caught up in what we're doing. And like, you think you're like making change, but like, you just kind of do, you end up, if you're not like actively pushing yourself and actively getting outside your comfort zone, you're going to end up doing what is comfortable to you. And you never like you're, you're working hard and you're doing things, but you're just doing enough to maintain, but you're not actually driving adaptation. And I freaking ever since I seen that quote, I was just like, damn, I just thought, started thinking about my clients, myself and everything like that. So just wanted to, to share that one.
2: I think it's super applicable to me that like reminds me of business even more than training where it's like what that is for continued growth is also constantly changing, right? Where it's like, fuck, I was so scared to start a podcast and now I have a podcast. And like that was such a huge step, but it's like, okay, now we've got to take it to the next level, right? Now, how do I make it better? Now, how do we continue to like Okay, like I was so worried I wasn't be able to help clients. Now they're getting pretty decent results, but then then it's like, okay, like what's the next what's the next progression, right? Like what's the next adaptation? I, that's I, that's a great thought.
1: Yeah.
0: Any any thoughts on that, Brandon? Or are we ready to uh, dive into the the questions?
1: <laughs> you guys know I always have thoughts, but they're always quite extensive. So let's jump in some <laughs> questions because that's what the audience is I here love it. for. I love it.
0: I feel like that was some good, uh, some good banter to to start. Um, all right, let's Absolutely. dive into it. So, first one here is exercises
2: to build your abs. Like what? Yeah. So, I mean, if we're looking at rectus abdominis, so basically the six pack muscle, which most people are going to be thinking of when they're trying about model build their abs. Basically, its role is going to be trunk flexion, right? So, I mean, within this, if we're looking at basic exercises we just want to look at okay how can we shorten and lengthen that muscle right so i think one of the most common mistakes people make is really just not understanding what the function of the actual muscle is right where basically if we want to actually properly train our abs like our six-pack muscle specifically quote-unquote we need to be pulling our rib cage our rib cage needs to be getting closer to our pelvis and then again we're extending so like there needs to be like some flexion through our spine there so for example like Really, I would say most movements where we can do that are going to be decent. I wouldn't like if we actually want to build that, that tissue. if we want to grow it larger, we're probably not going to be doing a ton of like static hold variations, like planks, for example, not that there's there's anything wrong with that. And yeah, that could contribute to stability, but we're probably not going to get a ton of hypertrophy from that. So basically it's going to be either movements where our upper body is fixed and we're pulling our pelvis closer to our rib cage. So this could be something like a gar hammer raise is a movement that I really like. This could be like a hanging knee raise, or it's going to be something where our lower body is fixed and we're pulling our rib cage closer to our pelvis. So this could be something like a cable crunch, for example, but really like when someone is struggling with like feeling or growing their abs, the most common thing I see is people are just moving at the hips. They're just basically creating a lot of hip flexion where it's like, Hey, we're probably mostly just working your hip flexors here where really what we want is again, that rib cage actually getting closer to the pelvis. And we want to be creating a lot of spinal flexion here where like how I program abs is honestly so extremely simple, where it's probably, we're going to be doing something like a cable crunch as a staple for me, for most clients. And then like, Hey, if we want a little bit more ab volume, maybe we'll again do like a gar hammer raises a movement that I really, really like, because it's a little bit more stable for the upper body versus like a hanging knee raise. But again, within that, we're really focusing, not on just like pulling our knees up to 90 degrees and then going back down, that's mostly going to be our hip flexors working, but rather like we're probably starting at that point where our knees are already at about 90 degrees. And then we're trying to rotate our pelvis up further. Right. And that's where we're really going to be shortening that muscle more. So honestly, like how I program abs is so simple from that perspective where again, I really like those few variations. I honestly don't try to introduce a lot of variation outside of that. And then it's more than anything; it's people typically don't execute it right. Like you'll see so many people doing a cable crunch, and it's hey, you're not actually pulling your ribcage any closer to your pelvis. You're literally just pushing your hips back and bending at the hips, but there's nothing happening in the spine, which is actually what your abs are going to be acting on. That's my take on it. Real, real
0: quick, can I just I just want to say one thing, and I'm gonna let you go, Brandon. I feel like a good way to know because. I do see that exercise, particularly the cable crunch and really just any ab exercise get butchered. I feel like a way to know that you're screwing it up is if you do the whole freaking stack and you're like, this is light. It's like, okay, you're oh, probably yeah. you're probably not freaking doing it. Right. That was just my thought brain. You can go ahead and,
1: and, and say what you wanted to say. Honestly, uh Jeremiah, you kind of covered this completely to be honest with you. A lot of things that I was thinking you already have pretty much stated, but I want to hit on a couple other things. Like when people come to me and they're like, Listen, I want to build my abs, it's not really building that they're speaking about, they really want to unveil their abs essentially. And that's why we do have those statements like abs are made in the kitchen because you need to get lean enough to expose that musculature. So really when it comes down to it, a lot of people will say, I want to do, you know, do you have ab workouts that are going to make my abs more defined? And what a lot of people have to realize about muscle architecture is that we can't make muscles more defined, quote unquote, especially your abdomen. Like we're going to make muscles bigger. Either they're either hypertrophy or they atrophy. So they either get bigger or they get smaller. So Really when it comes to ab training, like I'm very much focused on, we get a lot of core recruitment and abdominal recruitment during our, you know, especially like compound lifts during the course of our training to begin with, um, like in core stabilization exercises, And I'm making sure that, you know, people are doing things accurately. And I would rather do less than more because I have a lot of people, especially females that come to me that do like, you know, sets upon sets and sets of ab work. Like they're doing eight to 10 sets per workout multiple times a week, but they don't have good musculature in their abs because like Jeremiah hit on, they're not really working their actual abdomen muscle. So really when it comes down to it, I often will have them either do body weight exercises or I'll have them train it lighter and really, you know, focus on the stretch and the squeeze and really getting that contraction because, you know, pretty much our abs do two things. They flex the spine and they they work in trunk rotation. And really when it comes to trunk rotation, we don't want to do too much for the obliques because a lot of times it's going to make your, your waist look blockier. And that's something that m- most of us want to avoid, especially... When like the V taper, like I work with a lot of physique athletes, they want that V taper. So they don't want their waist appearing any bigger. And a lot of us do have like slightly uh, more blocky waist. You know what I mean? Like someone like, I always hear Steve Hall talk about this, that he has kind of a blockier like midsection. And so he needs to make the illusion of his deltoids, of his lats um, larger and wider so that it kind of shrinks that and it hides that. So really when it comes down to it, I'm looking at bodyweight exercises where one of my favorites is actually like the boso ball uh, crunch with, with a rope. And so we're getting, you know, I'm able to get full spinal flexion Uh, it's something that i have clients do very light and because they're on the bosu ball it's not making them or it doesn't lead them to be as likely to use that whole stack because as soon as they are telling me like their weights in like kind of like you said jeff that it's really high weight that they're utilizing i'm like listen you're utilizing other other musculature other than your actual abs so really like a caution for everyone out there train it light really get a deep contraction in that and don't be like ego chasing this is the one area not the one area but it's one area in which you should really focus on the the contraction because you're getting it stimulated through so many other activities and really you're gonna to need to be dieted down to see it so um a couple of things
0: on that so I know like uh dr Mike and uh on their hypertrophy hub they kind of talk about like the meV basically for uh ab work essential, or and I don't know if it's MV. I have to look it up but I think even in MEV which is minimum effective volume I think they almost put it at zero essentially like you don't really even have to do like any direct ab work if you want to see like just because like you said Brandon you you hit it in so many exercises that you do um go ahead I don't know if you're ready. Yeah I
1: haven't I haven't seen their content on that I've actually went to seminars with with Dr. Mike uh with Jared Feather I've seen them in person I haven't consumed a lot of their content in terms of like YouTube or anything however I don't doubt that at all because I have very, uh, advanced athletes that do not do direct ad work. I mean, we concentrate all their work on the muscle groups that they need and they have very developed musculature. And yes, we can contribute some of that to genetics, but I also have them doing m- multiple compound movements per, you know, uh, training session. So that's really where our focus lies and they're good at contracting and stabilizing their core during those exercises. So they are getting activation. They are getting, they are getting a stimulus. However, and also, you know, someone that's been talking about this a lot or that I've heard, and I've actually discussed this with him is Brian Borstein. He did an ab experiment, I believe for like eight to 12 weeks, as well as Aaron. And they have great, you know, ab um, definition and and musculature. However, they didn't see any substantial difference between doing ab work and not doing ab work in terms of actual seeing themselves dieted down and comparing pictures. And I'll also tell you from my own experience, you know, I've been on stage 15 times over the years, there's been preps I've done um ab training every every other day there's been preps that I have done no ab training and really the biggest difference that I've seen is my ability to contract so it wasn't that it actually made my abs more muscular or quote unquote more defined it was that when I did a photo shoot I had developed such a greater mind to muscle connection through the course of training that those muscles correctly that I was able to engage my abdomen better and that was the only difference.
0: That makes sense. I remember we had this conversation about my legs too. And you kind of saying like being able to contract it a little bit better is, is, is going to, you're going to be able to kind of show it off more It's Um, the presentation. Right. And, and you, and you hit on that too, by saying like, for some people, like if you do have a blockier waist, like you, you you need to get that illusion. And it's not, maybe it's not like just working on your abs. It's, you know, maybe like you said, bringing up your delts, things like that. And giving that illusion of like a a skinnier waist. Um, when you, so I, I think the mistake here too, is like people, think that um you know they, they they treat the abs like a different muscle group right it's like you train you train your biceps a certain way but it's like for whatever reason the abs are like this muscle that you like for whatever reason train it differently but it, again it still is like you said a muscle right it still does the same thing um if you do like if somebody is you know i feel like a lot of us get this where it's like, Hey, I just want to work on my abs or whatever. And they think that again, training them's what's going to get it. But like you said, it's, it's the, the nutrition, but correct me if I'm wrong here. Do you guys think that if you do train your abs and you do build that, like you're obviously going to build the muscles there, but do you think that you can maybe show off your abs at like a little bit of a higher body fat percentage if you build up the muscle there?
2: For sure. But I mean, how I always look at how I explain this to people, because I've had this conversation so many times is let's look at how quickly we can build muscle versus how quickly we can get lean. right. We know you probably already have pretty substantial ab development. We can get you leaner and get those guys so much more visible than like, if you're at 18% body fat as a male, we could spend like 10 years just focusing on an ab hypertrophy. We could ramp that volume way up and like maybe by year 10, okay, we can start to see those peak through, but you're still going to look pretty fluffy regardless. So, I mean, yeah but still there's a prerequisite level of weakness i think most people are going to get to i for sure think yeah like you can make it thicker, thicker blockier, and then more visible. but i'll say like i i'm glad you brought up the volume thing jeff because that's something i want to touch on as well i'll say it's very very rare that i'm going to program more than six hard sets per week for like l app specific training and that, that's like i i do feel like similar to you guys's point like the minimum effective volume is essentially zero, where you can maintain that very, very easily. And I think also that depends on like the client. Like, I think like somebody that's relatively new, they probably can't see that hypertrophy a little bit quicker, just like every other muscle. But, um, what do you do? You guys feel like that's about where your programming falls? Like, I would say if you're doing like 15, 20 plus sets of abs per week, probably you need to look at. Well, the way I'm training with my, with my execution or like the intensity that I'm using, like there's probably something missing there because again, it's incredibly rare that I have ever had a program more than six sets a week for someone.
1: No, I honestly, I completely agree with that. And kind of like to, to take what Jeff was saying that people, their approach to ab training is often much different than how they would approach any other muscle group. And what I really see when people come to me and they send me their program, the, the, the weekly volume that they're utilizing on their abs is substantially higher than even their largest muscle groups. If you're training your abs with more sets per week than you are your quads or your back, there's an issue there because we have to realize that there's crossover from these other, these other movements. So you're already having a stimulus. So we have to you know consider that a part of your weekly volume. And then also another thing that I uh, I see a lot, and I'm sure you guys see as well, they'll train it in rep ranges that we wouldn't use for hypertrophy. So it's like, some people will come to me, they're doing 50 rep sets. And it's like, we wouldn't expect that to hypertrophy, a small, another small muscle group, like your biceps. Like we know that the effective range of, of rep ranges for hypertrophy is between like five or six or up to 30. And that's to failure. But I see a lot of people that come to me or that, you know, just program abs and they do these sets, you know, very far from failure. So they're not getting any effective reps. They're utilizing a shit ton of, of sets and then extremely high rep ranges where it's not going to induce hypertrophy. They're getting a good muscular endurance adaptation. So they have, uh, you know, the ability to do things for a long period of time, but I always try to you know, bring things back, like what type of adaptation are you trying to force upon your body? Are you trying to get better at a movement or better at something, or are you trying to look better? And there's two different approaches to, to either one of those goals. And if you are an endurance athlete that just wants to be able to stabilize your core during an ultra marathon, by all means, do high rep ranges and and lots of sets and really build up that work capacity. But there's a difference between building work capacity to be able to perform and doing, building up an actual muscular stimulus to elicit an adaptation which would be muscle growth and and better definition and better development of that specific muscle group and in this case the abdomen that's literally the
0: way people train abs i feel like is the epitome of like junk volume like if you were to be like hey what's junk volume or like that's that's it (laughs) i wonder i wonder too like what and i i would imagine it's probably not like super high but i wonder what the fatigue cost of doing that would be to where it's like you i I know the abs probably aren't going to like accumulate a lot of fatigue but i do wonder if that could potentially affect like the way the way you train right so i, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that do, do you think that that would accumulate any substantial amount of of fatigue or not
2: i think if you're training like that like i don't think the intensity is there i think it's definitely different versus like if you were doing a 50 rep set of hack squats which a 50 rep set of anything sounds terrible awful <laughs> um, I'm glad those days are behind me, but <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know if like the individuals we're speaking to, if they need to like be thinking like, man, the the cost of this is really what's holding me back elsewhere. I would say that's probably not the case. I think like, you know, like when we're looking at
1: that, I think typically the intensity of solo is probably not a big factor, but I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm unsure about the fatigue costs just because really when it comes down to it, like I mentioned, they're so far from failure. It's not like they're going to complete muscular failure. It's more like they're they're just exhausted from the fact that they're doing something for such an extended period of time. And it's more of like that mental fatigue that's setting in rather than, you know, it's more systemic fatigue rather than peripheral fatigue, which would be in the muscle, but also not even from a fatigue cost perspective. Let's think about a time cost perspective. You're just wasting time in the gym. You're elongating your sessions or here's the other situation that I see where people will superset their ab training with leg training or with other movements. And now I do believe that they're incurring fatigue because instead of Mm -hmm. resting and getting a sufficient rest interval in between sets so they can have a highly effective quality set. Now they're incurring just extra movement and extra dissipation of energy in between those sets where it's now taking away from their actual training volume and their actual working sets of a movement that they do need more of an emphasis. in. Yeah. So
0: I, I think really to sum this up, you know, we definitely want to make sure that the qualities there, like make sure that you are, you know, picking exercises that are going to, they're going to flex the abs, um, you know, making sure that the, that the, like, you're not just moving your hips. Right. And then, you know, anywhere from, like we said, you could go anywhere from like zero to like, maybe at the high end, like eight to 10 sets. Like you said, most of the time you're not doing really any more than six. And I agree with you there, like twice a week three sets each, but I I think that's probably a good way to to sum up how you would train your abs. Um, I know that the question was exercises to build abs, but you get a little extra bonus for this. Would you guys agree with that or change any, anything there with that? Cool. All right. Let's go on to the next one. So is it possible to stunt metabolism by under eating calories for long periods of time Um, slash, and then how to like increase this as well? And uh, I know Brandon uh, you're chomping at the bits to answer this one. So I'm going to hand it to you first.
1: You know what? This is a question that I receive so often. And and I've done podcasts both with Jeremiah and with Jeff and with on multiple platforms on the concept of metabolic damage. And the reason for this, you know, this is kind of what this person's referring to. And I'm taking this question to be about the concept of metabolic damage, which is essentially the idea that when you, you diet hard and under eat, you'll quote unquote, stunt your metabolism and will have trouble getting leaner as a result of being in what people call starvation mode. And this is something like I've looked into so far into the research and the reason for that and reason I'm passionate about speaking about this or disproving this myth is because I've had so many people over the years. And I'm sure you guys being within the coaching space, especially since, you know, like I've been in this for close to 10 years, but especially like 2013 to 2016, I was getting these inquiries like every day. I was having people come to me and telling me, Hey, I'm metabolically damaged, or, you know, I have, you know, I've been in starvation mode. I'm gaining weight from being, you know, eating too little and all these claims that we just don't see substantiated in the evidence or in, in research. And it's something that I really see as a concept that causes these self-limiting beliefs on people. And so this whole concept of like stunting your metabolism or damaging your metabolism basically implies that you'll get permanent damage to your system, even after restoring homeostasis, just as a result of, you know, actually dieting. And here's the thing, metabolic damage is a myth. What we do see and we experience our metabolic adaptations, but these are all predictable, both both based on the amount of weight you lose, but also based on the literature that we have that dates back to the 1940s. So essentially this is a sign that your body is adapting to a stressor, which in this case is the energy deficit we've created. And I think it's important to realize that our body adapts to the stimuli we present it with. And this is a natural response as our body is an adaptive organism in all facets of life, especially in fitness. So for instance, you know, just so you guys can see it from a different contexts, I often like giving analogies to other areas of life where it's easier to understand because a lot of people, they don't understand nutrition or they don't understand metabolism, but many in our audience are going to understand like training. So for instance, when we go into the gym and we train progressively, our body adapts by getting bigger and stronger to handle the mechanical stress that we're applying to it on a regular basis. In a stressed out situation, when you stress your adrenals for a continued period of time, it'll adapt by eventually producing less cortisol. So when we eat less and put ourselves in an energy deficit, the body will adapt by decreasing energy expenditure. So we aren't burning as many calories and we can conserve more energy, which is why you'll notice that the diet or the initial deficit that you created and the weight loss that you initially got from that energy deficit no longer works for a continued period of time because your body has adapted. It's down-regulated the amount of calories that you burn per day. And eventually that initial deficit will become your maintenance calorie intake. And really what we see is that metabolic adaptation is only permanent if you were to stay in a permanently dieted down state and you were to try to maintain the lowest level of body fat you achieved with either the same amount of calories that you achieved that low level body fat with, or if you continue to lower calories, um, you know, to stay there. So I think the best example of what we see in a dieted down state that actually disproves the concept of the metabolic damage is the Minnesota uh, semi-starvation study. And for anyone that isn't familiar with this study, it's arguably the most aggressive and harshest dieting study that ever was conducted and ever will be <laughs> conducted. Because if you look into it, um, like the ethics boards were completely different during the 1940s than it is now. So they were basically able to starve these guys. So what they did was they took conscientious, um, war, um, objectors, and they put them in a study where for 24 weeks, they pretty much slashed their calories in half. And it was what they considered, they actually labeled it as controlled starvation and they dieted them down until they got to 5% body fat. So that's basically like constant level conditioning. And then what they did was what they were really trying to study was what happens to the body during periods of refeeding, because they were trying to anticipate when guys came over from World War II, how we would be able to refeed those that had been stuck in internment camps. And so they did, you know, they followed the dieting period with 20 weeks of refeeding. And at baseline, there were an average of 70 kilograms um, with 60 kilograms of that being fat-free mass. And then throughout the course of the trial, they lost 20 kilograms of body mass and it was half and half. So remember these guys aren't weight training. So half of it was 10 kilograms of that was fat-free mass. And then 10 kilograms was fat mass. So they lost half muscle and half fat. And during the refeeding period, they all went back to around 70 kilograms and regained most, but not all of their fat free mass. And in this trial, they saw that their RMR went down by about 15% more than what they would have just predicted based off the weight that they lost. And that's what we call adaptive thermogenesis or what, you know, it's a component of metabolic adaptation. But when they did the refeeding period, when they remeasured their resting metabolic rate after their weight was stable. So once they went from, you know, having lost 20 kilograms and they regained those 20 kilograms, their RMR was back to its initial baseline. So this is pretty clear proof that even after 24 hours of being in a a pretty much a starved state, there is no, you know, permanent metabolic damage. And we also have, you know, data from those with anorexia, um, those with that are really massively underweight because they're due to poverty and things like that, they do have lower BMRs or basal metabolic rate than those that are controlled. So if they take, they've done this in studies where they'll take someone with either an eating disorder or who who has been in in an impoverished country and they'll compare them compared to someone else of their weight who hasn't been in those same conditions. And a lot of times what you'll hear is people will think that because they either were undernourished or they had a eating disorder, that they have a damaged metabolism. But when they actually in research test their metabolic rate and compare it to not only their body weight, but their level of lean body mass, it tracks with what their predicted metabolic rates would be, which are low, but it's due to having very little muscle mass. So we have to realize your muscle mass is one of the biggest predictors of your resting metabolic rate. So if you have really low muscle mass, you can't expect your your metabolic rate or your resting metabolic rate to be high. And then also more for like our athletic populations, we also see in like bodybuilder case studies where these guys get leaner than pretty much anyone in the world that they do have a suppression in their metabolic rate throughout the course of the prep. But after the dieting period is over, it regulates again, and it usually goes up pretty quickly. I know Bill Campbell did a study with Eric Trexler a few years ago where he essentially took guys that were down, you know, guys and girls that had competed. And within eight weeks, they had their, their resting metabolic rate was at where it was pre-contest or -uh, pre-prep or even above that due to increasing food. So if metabolic damage were true, you know, bodybuilders would progressively have slower and slower metabolisms because those are the individuals that are most, uh likely to be dieting harshly and for progressive periods of time over and over again. So it's different than like the general public because a lot of these guys, if you look in bodybuilder case studies, they're they're competing every year or two and they're really getting down to those really low levels of body fat where Metabolic adaptation is more present. So if anyone was going to have like these super suppressed and quote unquote metabolically damaged systems, it would be high level bodybuilders. But we don't see that. We don't see, you know, and I'll tell you, we don't see that in the research, nor have I seen that in practice. And I've literally put hundreds of people on stage and I've, I've worked with individuals time and time over again. And it's not that dieting is always easy for them. However, it's not like every single time that we re-diet them to stage level conditioning, that it gets more difficult. And I'll tell you, even from my own perspective, I've competed 15 times. I've done over hundred photo shoots. Dieting is difficult no matter what stage of life I've been in. However, it doesn't get progressively more difficult. And it's not, and if it was, or, or if my metabolism was getting damaged in the process, I would be having a more and more difficult time every single time. And I have literally files upon files of every prep that I've done, as well as pretty much every diet I've done. And it's not like my calorie intake is substantially different. You mean from one diet to the next, depending on how lean I get. So if I get leaner, yes, my calorie intake has to go down. So right now I'm mini cutting on substantially more calories than I would if I was in a contest prep, but I'm just right under 10% body fat. Whereas I've been down to like 4.1 on a BIA. So there's a massive discrepancy, but then as far as like increasing metabolism, um, is concerned. I actually just did um, like a four or five part series on this exact concept or on this topic on my show, uh, the Chasing Clarity podcast. But just some of the most effective methods that I've seen both in the literature and then also with clients is first thing you want to do is increase food intake. We see that with increasing food intake, even in overfeeding studies for up to eight weeks, we see up to a 10 to 15% increase in resting metabolic rate. So that's the first thing you want to do. If you want to upregulate your metabolism, like I was speaking about on the podcast earlier, when I was going through my uh, mini cut update, like I have a slightly elevated, um, you know, increased uh, maintenance calorie intake during the off season, because I'm eating so many calories besides that you want to increase protein intake because it has the highest thermic effect of feeding. Um, in my case, I really like the concept of energy flux, so I increase both movement and meat so that my clients are in a high energy flux state, so they're eating more and burning more. Uh, another thing is eating whole and unprocessed foods. We see that whole and processed foods have about double the thermic effect of feeding as compared to processed foods. So there's been studies where they've looked at essentially like a, ch- a sandwich that was from whole foods and it had a thermic effect of 20% as compared to a processed food version. And it had 10%. So these are things that these are levers we could pull to increase your metabolism besides, you know, the obvious ones, which would be adding muscle mass. And then also, you know, obviously engaging in resistance training and aerobic training. A lot of people don't realize this. And I covered this in one of my podcasts, aerobic training actually increases your resting metabolic rate by close to hundred calories per day. If you engage in it frequently. So a lot of people think, Oh, you know, I do a lot of cardio, it's suppressing my metabolism. No, if you're doing a lot of cardio and in an energy deficit and losing a lot of weight, the energy deficit in and of itself is lowering your total daily energy expenditure. However, aerobic training, both in energy balance or in an energy surplus actually upregulates your resting metabolic rate. So these are just some strategies you can use, but just for the person out there that asked this question, for anyone that has doubts about this, really look into the literature and like, realize that if, the case was that there was something as metabolic damage. Someone would die at once and then never be able to get lean again. And it's not, it's often not metabolic damage. It's inaccurate tracking. It's, you know, overestimating your energy expenditure. I just had Alan Aragon on the show. We just went through all these mistakes and I won't cover them here just because I don't want to take his thunder, but there's a lot of things that people think are metabolic damage. However, you know, they're really just um, oversights on our end. Um. So,
0: yeah, you, I mean, you summed that up Perfectly. Like, I feel like again, like really no, like you, yes, during the time you're doing it, like, yes, it, it does downregulate, but as you said, you can get it back up. What, so this is where I think this comes from. So, and I, I read this on James Krieger's side, he, he kind of had like an article on it. Um, you know, kind of the concept of like yo-yo dieters, right. And like, this is what I think happens. And I'm curious to hear your guys thoughts on this. So like, basically a lot of people, if they don't have a coach, how do they diet? They crash diet, right. They lose weight super quick. Um, that not high protein, they're probably not weight training. So what happens, right? You lose some, you lose some lean body mass. Yes. You lose weight, but then you get super hungry. You don't have a time frame on your fat loss diet. What do you do? You stop tracking. Then you gain weight super quick. What happens there? You're gaining a bunch of, of fat mass on the way back up. Right. So like, it doesn't like necessarily like get harder over time. It's just the fact that like each time you do that, you like lose more lean body mass in the process and you're, and then you gain more fat mass. Right. And so it's like, as you were mentioning muscle uh, really helps with your RMR. So it's like, if that's lower, like that's going to hurt that. And I think that's kind of the trap. A lot of people get themselves into, um, I'm not sure what your guys' thoughts are on, on that.
1: No. So you're hundred percent correct. And if you remember, um, actually I did a podcast with both of you guys on the body fat overshooting effects. And one of the main reasons that we see that is when cow, cal- first of all, when you lose fat-free mass during, so fat-free mass is anything besides Um, fat mass. So that could include, that does include muscle, that includes organ mass, that includes uh, muscle glycogen. So when you lose that during an energy deficit, during a diet, you are more predisposed when you lose a high percentage that you are more predisposed to experiencing hypophagia, which is essentially an intense increase in appetite and in hunger. So what ends up happening is it's not, your body is essentially driving you to eat more. So these physiological signals, you know, you're getting, you have decreased leptin, increased ghrelin. So your hunger hormones are all skewed. They're, they're through the roof and it causes you to be more predisposed to overeat. And what ends up happening is we know that there is no anabolic rebound. I always say there's no anabolic rebound. There's an adipose rebound, meaning if you're going to rebound anything and regain something, it's going to be fat mass. And we regain fat mass when we go into a surplus post-diet quicker than we regain muscle mass. So we really don't see that hypophagia that increase intense hunger dissipate or lower until we regain the lean body mass that we lost, the muscle mass that we lost. And so people will often see that they're gaining fat so quickly and not tie it back to the fact that they're overeating substantially. Like a lot of times, you know, with this yo-yo dieting phenomenon, what you'll hear people say is, well, I went back to eating like I used to. Well, you have to realize that yes, that was keeping you overweight to begin with. So it had you at a higher body fat percentage than you preferred. However, your metabolism and your energy expenditure it is suppressed. It's lowered. So now what was maybe a 500 calorie uh, surplus during, you know, before you diet, it could be a thousand calorie surplus. And we see that in, in studies by Rosenbaum and libel that a 10% body weight, a reduction. So a, a diet that led to 10% loss in body weight. So if you're 200 pounds, you get down to 180 pounds, they lost 500 calories off of their total daily energy expenditure. So the amount of calories that they burn within 24 hours. So say, for instance, you were initially in a 500 calorie surplus before you went into this diet, you went right back to the same calories. So you said, I'm going to go right back to maintenance. Well, now you're at double the amount of maintenance that you you really were at. You're at now a thousand calorie surplus and you're regaining weight twice as fast as you initially were. So now you think there's something wrong with you. You think your metabolism is damaged. It, no, it's it's adapted to what you gave it. You gave it far, substan- uh, you know substantially less calories than it was used to operating on. So it down-regulated energy expenditure. Now you still have a down-regulated energy expenditure because you haven't uh, reverse dieted slowly enough to upregulate your body's internal systems and now it's reacting by adding fat mass. And so there's there's also a lot of methodological issues with the studies that we have. First of all, if we look into the research studies on metabolic adaptation, on the first, one, I, I know all this literature in and out. However, I'll be the first one to point out that they don't do things. When we look at weight loss studies, this isn't done to optimize body composition. You have to realize weight loss is a clinical outcome that people are looking to to improve health, not their body composition. So, if you actually look in a lot of the weight training or into the uh, weight loss literature that shows metabolic adaptation, there's a lot of things that we could pick out. And I don't mean to be judgmental, but we have to realize that it often doesn't extrapolate to the general public that we're working with, to our average clientele that are athletic, that are resistance trained, that are eating. High high protein. First of all, they don't have them training, both. They don't have them aerobically training, nor do they have them resistance training. So they don't have a stimulus to maintain actual muscle tissue. So they're more predisposed to losing lean body mass. That's the first issue. So now they're losing lean body mass. They're losing metabolically active tissue. So the resting metabolic rate is lowering even more. They don't utilize high protein diets. A lot of times you'll see that even in like the very low calorie diets, they're like, 60 to 80 grams of protein per day. They're losing substantial amounts of weight. So they don't have protein there to help with satiety and to help with managing hunger, but they also don't have it for a muscle preservation perspective. And then they also have a very accelerated rate of loss. So if you don't have the stimulus of weight training, you don't have protein intake to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and you're you're losing at a much more aggressive rate of loss than we would utilize with a client, which is generally like 0.5 to 1% body weight loss per week. Now you're kind of like adding all these insults to injuries. So that's where we get where people will cite the meta or the, um, Biggest weight loss or biggest loser study as like proof that there's metabolic damage. Well, Kevin Hall re-examined that this past year and he saw that those that had the largest suppression of the resting metabolic rate, it wasn't because they were damaged, it was because they had lost the most amount of weight and kept the most off. So if you're still in a weight-reduced state, you are still going to see some metabolic adaptations because now, especially with those individuals, they lost a hundred plus pounds. So now if they're maintaining 50 or 60 pounds lower than their normal body weight, than their set point, they are going to have less, you know, a lower total daily energy expenditure than they had when they came into the study and they were massively overweight. So there's a lot of things within both the literature and in, within our normal, you know, day-to-day construct where people will take a little bit of research and they'll try to like fit their narrative with it and say, look, this is proof. But we have so many studies that are done on resistant training populations that don't show a permanent suppression of metabolic rate. And what we really have to realize is that psychology plays such a massive, you know, uh, it's such a massive influence on our ability to attain our goals and also the, um, the approaches that we take with it. And if you're someone that really does believe you have metabolic damage, you're incurring more damage to yourself than anything else you could do with your diet.
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's important to, this is where like I've, the more I've learned about research, you got to be careful with like the actual methods, right? You can't just read what, what it says. You got You got to look, look to see what they're doing. Right. And like, for example, there it's like, Hey, they're going super low protein. They're doing it super quick as well. Like, and those are things that we wouldn't normally do, uh, for our clients. Um, real quick too. Uh, did you, I don't know if I heard this from you, Brandon, but did you one time say, I don't know where I heard it, it either way. Did, uh, When you lose muscle too, like you see like almost an increase in hunger as well when you lose muscle. That's what I'm
1: referring to. Yeah. So okay, what ends up happening is we have to realize that. Fat free mass or muscle tissue, especially, is metabolically active tissue. So, let's just look at the energetic cost of maintaining fat free mass. If you look at muscle, it burns about 13.2 calories per pound. Whereas, if you look at fat mass, it burns about four calories per pound. So, there's about three times the energetic cost to maintain muscle tissue as there is to maintain fat tissue. So, if you lose more muscle during a diet, you're going to have a lowered resting metabolic rate. That's going to be a huge indicator. We see in in, in terms of the literature that your muscle mass, your lean body mass accounts for about 69% of your resting metabolic rate, or it accounts for 69% of the variance between two people of the same weight within the resting metabolic rate. So if you lose more metabolically active tissue. Remember that is like a survival mechanism. We have muscle just evolutionarily to power our activities. So if you lose that, your body's going to drive you to regain that because not only is lean body mass muscle, but it's also organ mass, which is another metabolically active tissue. So then we have what I was referring to before. Hypophagia is that increased hunger. It's that, that like starvation response where you really want to eat because your body wants to restore that costly tissue. It doesn't want to lose that. I mean, in, in certain aspects, it doesn't want to lose that because you're in a starved state. So it doesn't want to fuel that process. However, it wants to regain that as soon as possible, but we have to realize just like we realize that fat loss is a much more accelerated and quicker process than is muscle gain. When you go from being in a dieted down state, Your metabolic is suppressed. So your resting metabolic rate is lower. Your total daily energy expenditure is lower. Your NEAT is substantially lower. And then we have to look at the hormones. So we see that there's, especially when you get really lean, and I want people to realize, unless you're getting to stage level, you probably aren't going to see these these drastic metabolic adaptations. But when you get below 11, 10% body fat, we will see reductions in serum testosterone. We'll see reductions in estradiol. We'll see reductions in IGF-1, in thyroid hormone, both in T3 and T4 and an increase in reverse T3, which kind of deactivates T3 and its ability to attach the receptor and actually be metabolically active thyroid hormone. And so when you get to these really, really lean levels, now you're not only in a suppressed state metabolically, but also hormonally. So you're in a less advantageous state too Build tissue. So, if you go into a surplus, we know, and we've covered this on both of our podcasts, where I've went over the literature on how we only need a two to three hundred calorie surplus at most to build tissue because it's a slow process. But say that you went from you know under eating and you're in a dieted down state. Now your bot your your total daily energy expenditure is suppressed, and instead of just increasing calories two to three hundred calories. Getting you back to maintenance calories, you're now increasing by five hundred or a thousand calories. You're in this massive surplus, and you're at a disadvantageous position to regain body tissue or body mass. And the process of fat loss, what ends up happening is we not only increase insulin sensitivity in the level of the muscle, but we also increase it in the level of the fat cell, which is where we see in some studies um, fat cell hyperplasia, where you gain new fat cells because now you're filling up your fat cells so quickly from the massive surplus that you're having, but you also have Fat, um, fat upregulating enzymes that are actually causing more of a predisposition towards fat gain. So there's so many things going on beneath the surface that that's why a lot of people contribute them to having a damaged metabolism, not realizing it's not your metabolism that's damaged. It was that you took a suboptimal approach post diet, which is why I always am getting back to the fact you have to consider an exit plan. This isn't just a diet to a destination. You have to think about dieting as a lifestyle. Dieting comes from the word, the Greek word dieta, which means way of life. You have to think about it. if you have a fat loss goal, let's think about it as a process. Let's stop thinking just about the outcome about losing the 20 pounds for your wedding. or just getting into ripped condition to go to Bali, like Jeremiah, like he's thinking he's going to be thinking about his reverse diet. He knows there's a diet after the diet. And it's not that we have to think about being in this perpetually dieted down state. We have to think about it from the context of nutritional periodization. We need to go from one phase to another and allow one to potentiate the other. So if you want to go from having lost weight and getting lean, and then you want to go into a muscle building phase, realize we need a phase to bridge the gap. And that's where a reverse diet comes in.
2: Yeah, I I definitely don't have too much to add to that. I think that was very thorough. Um, I think that just this idea of metabolic as a damage as a whole has done such a disservice both to people that are trying to lose weight and also to like so many new coaches where I see so many, and this was a mistake I made when I started where like someone would come on board, hey, I can't lose weight. Okay, how many calories are you eating? Oh, like 1200 oh shit, you should be able to lose on way more calories than that. And just like taking it at a face value and like, okay, we're going to a reverse diet. We need to bring our calories up further. Right. Where it's so often there's like, that's a huge mistake. I think so many people make is again, just like taking now, of course, like there's a place for a reverse diet, but I think again, just like, rather than like trying to educate clients i'm like okay here's how we track accurately and like i think people misunderstand how easy it is to just eat a ton of calories especially if we're eating a lot of processed foods and underestimate the importance of adequate protein of muscle tissue of daily movement right where i feel like this is just something that's done this again like from both ends where so many people think their metabolism is damaged. So then it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm kind of screwed. And again, so many coaches that just misunderstand it. And they're like, this person said they're eating 1,200 calories. They don't dig any deeper. So again, like we need to enter this reverse diet process when we're in reality. Maybe that person's eating 2,600, 2,800 calories or more. And then they're trying to ramp their calories up further. And then that person's gaining more fat. And then they're frustrated and, oh, shit, well, nothing works for me. I truly must be broken. That is, I just feel like as a whole, it's just something that's done so much are to the industry. agreed. Yeah,
0: I agree with you. I, I definitely, when I see somebody say they're eating you a know, certain amount of calories, it's like, you definitely give them that same thing with like the, the training volume thing, where it's like, they say they're doing all this training and, and it's like, you kind of just give that skeptical eye. Uh, I heard that from, <laughs> from James Hoffman. Uh, he always, you know, <laughs> he always brings that up, but I feel like you definitely give that skeptical eye of like, okay, but are you really, like you said, Jeremiah, it's like, and, and again, I, I think some people take it as like, Oh, what are you saying? I'm lying about what it's like, no, not necessarily lying about what you're tracking, but it's like, it's so easy to, to yeah. go way over, like do 1200 calories. Like that's, I, I know again, we're, you know, we, you know, we're guys We're, we're we have, you know, a good amount of muscle mass. Like I'm shorter than you guys, but you know, we're you know, I still 160, 180, you know, around there, like we have to eat a decent amount of food. Like. I feel like, man, could you imagine like 1200 calories, like eating that? Like, I know, I know when I go on a mini cut and I'm like at 2000, I'm like, damn, dude, this is, this is freaking awful. Um, you know, so I, I think it's really hard to actually eat
2: that amount of food. Um, so that's kind of my, my thoughts on it. Yeah. And I would definitely just like encourage like any like coach before you just take that at face value, like dig deeper. I know there's so m- like, I would say 90% of people who start coaching with us will come in and like, man i mean, such low calories. I don't know why I can't lose. And then we dig into food logs and it's like, okay, so if I look back at the last month, we have six days across the last month where we've tracked, right? So how do we know that like, this is our consistent. And again, like maybe that not, tracking might not be the best method for everyone, but again, it's just important to like, dig a little bit deeper there. And again, like as a coach, I think it's important to also educate your clients on like how we can get more satiety of our foods and like how we can actually track accurately. I think that's, this is kind of taking it off on a completely different topic, but yeah, I don't really think I have anything else to add there. Um, real
0: quick, this, I know, uh, Brandon, we like to kind of talk about studies sometimes. I know they, uh, did that study where they kind of asked, like they, they claimed they were like small eaters. These women what they were small eaters and they said they would eat like 1200 calories and then they did doubly labeled water and they looked and they were actually eating like double that basically. And then they actually put them on 1200 calories and they like freaking just lost a, a shit ton of weight, like super quick. Um, so, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So that's, you're referring to Lickman which 1992. So, um, I'm very well versed in that study. I've actually used that. Multiple times over the yeah. years during presentations and stuff, and essentially, just so the audience knows, essentially what they did was they took um, women that came, women and men actually that came into a lab and said they were diet resistant, and they claimed to be eating twelve hundred calories, which is really ironic because this was done in the nineties before like twelve hundred calories was like that standard <laughs> level, and so what liquid and colleagues did was he they looked at people that were diet resistant and they also were. Um, People that had certain commonalities or certain things in common. So they were prescribed thyroid medication. They thought they had metabolic issues. They thought they, they had asked their doctors for thyroid prescriptions, even without having thyroid markers that indicated that they had a disease state. And so they claimed like Jeff alluded to that they were eating 1200 calories per day. And it's just ironic because it's like the magical number that everyone refers to. But when researchers took the participants and did the doubly labeled water within the standards of, actually, no, they didn't do, I don't believe they did doubly labeled water. I think they used indirect calorimetry. They were in the lab, the metabolic ward, but either way, they they had a very accurate, like gold standard measurement of the actual um, energy intake. And what they saw was that I believe the average underestimation or underreporting of their calorie intake was 47, uh, 47%. So it was I know it was over 1,000 calories per day. It was like 1,050 calories per day that they were underreporting their energy intake. Then they also had their them report their uh, energy expenditure or their physical activity levels. And they overreported that by more than 50%. So that accumulated to another 250 or 300 calories. So when they really looked at it, the total misreporting, was over 1300 calories. So they actually took, and they were saying they were eating 1200 calories, but they really were eating 2500 calories. And that's why they weren't seeing weight loss. So they put them on like 1600 or 1800 calories and they saw substantial weight loss throughout the course of the trial. And here's the thing, like, it's really hard. I've I've worked with over a thousand clients at this point. And it's never that I think that a client's lying. I just think that we're subject to human error, error. Like we're susceptible to making mistakes. And there's even a higher likelihood of that when we're diet fatigued and we're experiencing increased hunger. And what we have to realize is that there's a tie between, I always say you can't separate physiology from psychology. So if someone feels dietarily restricted, they're in this restraint, you know, rigid restraint mindset where they think they're dieting, they think they're consuming 1200 calories. It doesn't matter what you tell them. They're not going to believe it until you bring out an awareness metric, like tracking their calories or like doing a food log or like doing, I recently did this with one of my clients. I did an energy audit. And what I had him do was track throughout the course of the day, what uh, actually it was a her. I wanted her to not only write down and log her meals, but any bite she took throughout the day. So your bites, your licks, your tastes, your nibbles, whatever it was. And what we realized was she was under reporting her calories by an average of 350 something calories throughout the course of the week. And even more on the weekends, it was over 500 calories on the weekends. And that's why she was stagnant because she was essentially erasing the energy. I had her in a modest deficit that I had. You know, estimated, calculated to be about 400 calories. So she was losing, you know, realized that this is a, a small female. So I had her in about a 400 calorie deficit. She was supposed to be losing about three quarters of a pound a week, but her weight was going up. And after a few weeks, I realized, all right, this isn't water weight fluctuations. I'm looking at her menstrual cycle. I'm looking at week one of, of the cycle compared to the next month's week one. And I'm not seeing any movement. And I realized, listen, you know, she's either under us, she's not hitting her, her physical activity levels, her steps, but she's sending me her, her aura report. So I knew that wasn't the case. She's either down regulated from a metabolic perspective and I need to make further cuts, but before I do that, I want to really look into her habits and what she when she came back to me after the energy audit, she said I had no idea what I was consuming in between my meals. I only thought about eating when I was sitting down at a meal and I was nailing it and she was honestly, she was very within a couple of grams, but it was all within what I would recommend, you know, five to 10% within your meals. And so she was accurate within meals, but she wasn't realizing the compounding Um, domino effect that could be happening when she's preparing food for the family, when she's taking bites, when her kids don't finish their plate and she's cleaning up after them and she eats their chicken nuggets and stuff like that. And it really works as an awareness tool. So this, this was about two weeks ago. I really worked on mindful eating techniques. I just had her no snacking in between meals. Let's think about your, your food consumption. Let's not eat on your, you know, when you're on your phone or your computer or watching a movie, let's not eat during those times of the day. And let's always make sure that we're logging things. Even if you have something that's off plan, it doesn't matter. I just want you to log it. So I'm aware of it and I can make the accurate adjustments rather than assuming that you are stalled out because you have down regulated your energy expenditure. And I need to make further uh, adjustments to the actual plan in terms of your calorie intake. When in actuality, it's just because you weren't actually hitting the calorie intake that I had, you know, um, allocated towards you. You weren't within your calorie budget.
0: Yeah, I I definitely think it's uh, a lot of times just a lack of skill. Right. And I I definitely think, you know, just like anything, nutrition, tracking, everything, it's all skill. And like, it's just something that you uh, just practice with over time. Right. And it's not, again, like we're trying to call you out or anything like that. Right. We're just trying to help you improve that. Um, cool. So uh, obviously it's, it's, uh, uh, 30, uh, halfway. I don't know what time it is for you guys. 530 for you, Brandon, 430 for me, Jeremiah, I think it's 230 for you. Um, Uh, do we have time for like kind of a quick little question to before you guys have to hop off? Kind of like a rapid fire one. This is kind of like the ones that we do at the end. So I'm going to start with it since I've had time to think on it. So I want you guys to have a couple seconds to think about what you would do for this. Okay. So what are the top three habits you guys would recommend someone focus on when trying to improve their physique? So you can only pick three. Okay. So these are only three things you can tell this person to do, um, to, uh, and you know to improve their physique. So I'll start. My three would be, and I went back and forth on this. I'm sure you guys will too. But high protein diet. You know, make sure you're you're consuming a high protein diet. Make sure you lift weights, and then just stay active. Right. Make sure you're staying moving throughout the day. Those would be my three. Um, there was one that I wonder if you guys are going to hit on that. I'm like ah, I, I wanted to throw in there as well, but obviously we can only pick three. So curious to hear well, your guys. You gotta to trend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: <trend.
0: laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was going to be my number one. Actually, I, I
1: think the audience uh, audience missed that one, but. uh, I was oh, actually dude.
0: thinking I was actually thinking SARMs, but.
2: <laughs> um, mine are going to be the same. I was going to say track your macros, resistance strain, and daily movement goal.
1: You're, you guys are taking my stuff, man. Even <laughs> the energy flux. You guys took me on that. Come on. I'm the step guy. All right. Um, let me think. High protein intake is going to be number one. I'm always looking at increasing protein intake as well as the frequency. I do want to hit on that because I don't think a lot of people realize how crucial it is. Uh, Because we're always looking at like totals nowadays where it's like, oh, as long as you hit your protein total by the end of the day, but like when it really comes to building muscle and improving your physique, we have to realize that that comes through the stimulation of muscle protein synthesis multiple times throughout the course of the day. And that's how you're going to really maximally build your physique and build lean muscle tissue. It's also going to help with you know, blood sugar management. It's going to help with suppressing appetite. So it's going to make you more likely to stick to your plan. And actually, one of the biggest issues that I see with people is they under consume protein the first meal of the day. Now realize you're coming off a fasted state, your body's most receptive to protein in the morning and post-workout. That's when you have upregulated amino acid availability or or sensitivity to amino acids. So a big thing, and we see this actually in the literature where uh, most Americans will under consume protein for breakfast. So that's one thing if you're trying to- Start your day with that. That's also going to help with appetite regulation. It's going to help with managing appetite. It's going to increase your energy expenditure. Another thing is improving uh, your diet quality. So, this is, I understand we're in an age, a day and age where everyone's if it fits your macros, but I really don't think enough people focus on nutrient density and food quality, um, especially when it comes to consistently getting a variety of fruits and vegetables in their diet. So, I see, I have a lot of people, and Jeremiah and I have gone over this with case studies where people had nutrient deficiencies you know, health implications and then also issues with managing hunger and appetite because they're not, you know, really taking a, a whole foods approach and they're not looking at the nutrient density of their diet or the quality of their diet. And the last one you guys hit on tracking and stuff, but um, I like to uh, plan ahead and manage your calories when you have an event coming up, because I find, especially with it being summer, this is the, the highest likelihood or the time where people are going to be most susceptible to veering off the diet. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with that, but I like to, you know, really get my clients to view their calorie intake as a budget. So if someone has, you guys have an event coming up or an outing, you know, and that you want to enjoy, but you don't want it to derail your physique goals, just plan ahead. You know what I mean? So, you know, you could utilize different strategies like you can eat less in the days leading up or, or after the actual event itself. You can manage your, your calorie budget throughout the course of the day. So what I I personally do is if I'm going to have an event at night, I'll save up calories throughout the course of the day. So I might have like some lean protein veggie meals and that will fill me up. I'll hit my micronutrient intake, but then I'll have more of an allocation for carbs and fats for that dinner meal or for that, you know, whatever it may be for, for the evening. And then also, um, you know, you can also eat less following the event itself and just you know manage that calorie budget and realize it doesn't have to be like every single day the same. You can make up for it, especially after the event. So you know, these are just different strategies. But I really like people planning in advance. Like look at the menu, like that's a big thing that I do. Also, don't be scared to speak up. Like, there's a big thing actually. Um, I was out in um you know Nashville a few weeks ago. And Jeff thought it was surprising. Now, Jeff, you know, Jeff Black, not Jeff Own, uh, Jeff Black is a fitness professional, he owns a gym, but he thought it was surprising. I'm very particular with how I order my meals and I'm very cordial, I'm respectful, and I'm polite with it, but I want things cooked a certain way because there's little things like oil, like butter that are gonna easily stack up calories that are low quality calories, especially like refined oils that have been refried and recooked and they're um essentially oxidized fats that you don't want to get into your body anyway, but it's also really adding to the calorie density of that meal. And if I could just ask them, Hey, listen, do you mind just cooking this with salt and pepper on the side? Like without any of those additives, I'm saving calories. It's also helping my digestion. And it's little things like that, that are healthy habits where I could still enjoy a meal, but I'm not getting a ton of extra calories because we actually see in the literature that, um, you know, we have menus now that are at all restaurants, but those menus, when they've actually taken those meals from popular restaurants and put them in a bomb calorimeter to actually measure oh, yeah. the actual energy intake... They're up to 50 to hundred percent off. So a 500 calorie meal can actually contain a thousand calories. So these are just little habits. Like a lot of times I'll have clients that say, well, I only had a 500 calorie meal. And in their mind, they only had 500 calories, but to their body, their body doesn't care what their mind thought it was. It cares what the actual meal was. So they felt more restricted because they kept within the constraints of their, their actual calorie intake. However, they, their body absorbed those extra 500 calories and it showed on the scale and within their body composition that next week. So these are just like little, little hacks.
0: I, hey, I will say you are the first person I've ever seen that put mustard on their salad. I don't mean to call Who's you out mustard? like that.
1: No, no, everyone does. <laughs> so it's so everyone in the audience knows it's mustard and and it's Splenda. Okay. And it makes for a zero calorie or very low Yo, calorie, calorie. Um, honey mustard. Try it. Don't knock until you try it. I've hey, I, so many clients try it and they love it.
0: I, I didn't, I, I'll admit, I didn't see the Splenda. So I, I apologize for that. I didn't, I didn't see the Splenda. But it's like was,
1: a sweet, it's a sweet mustard. It really, I, honestly, it's good. I will say Brandon
0: definitely lives up to uh, how he preaches things um, on on social media, for sure, in terms of how he goes about um, everything. So uh, I know I was enjoying sushi, Qdoba, a burger when I was in Nashville, and Brandon's over here freaking eating. Uh, it was <laughs>
1: insane. Uh, I you love it, I though, eat, man. your, you your dedication, eat, well, though. Absolutely, no. And I was in a building phase, but here's the thing I eat what sits well with me, what is going to help fuel me digestively. I enjoy the way that I eat. I've made this a lifestyle. I've also been doing this for so long. And so I also want to be a walking representative of the lifestyle that I preach. And there's times that I treat myself and that I have, you know, deviations from the diet, but I don't see them as such because they're not cheap. Like I said, a treat, not a cheat because it's a part, it's a hedonic deviation. It is something that's planned into my routine. I've accounted for it. I've made sure that it fits within the constraints of the goals that I have. And that it's still in alignment with the direction that I want to head it to. Absolutely. Um, you basically, you guys hit on all the ones that
0: I was going to say. The only one that I thought maybe one of us was going to sneak in was sleep. I thought maybe that one would 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 get in there, but it's it's hard to you know again if you're sleeping but not lifting weight, it's hard to, to build muscle. So, um, but I thought maybe that one would sneak in there. But I loved it. Um, good uh, episode as as always, guys. Um, any closing remarks or anything like that before we end the recording? Cool. All right, well, we will uh, chat with you guys next time.